Welcome to the Echo Church Podcast. Echo is a group of people in Cincinnati, Ohio, who love Jesus, love hanging out, and are navigating the ups and downs of our faith together. We're glad you're here. We are starting a new series today, Exodus, and I am particularly moved by this image. It's very, it's very powerful. Uh, Shante has worked on that for us as a staff, and we all gave input and was like, whoa, this thing is, this is moving us. And we see there's some power there. And we're going to begin talking about this power of God, what God demonstrates to his people through Exodus. Because this is a big story. It's an ancient story. It is one that not just the Israelite people who experienced it felt the power of God, but ever since, generation after generation, beyond the Jewish people to expand to so many of us who cling to God, we look at this story for inspiration, for perseverance, and to recognize a God who delivers. So the great thing is that some of us might know this story. In fact, Echo Kids have studied through the life of Moses last fall. So if you have an Echo Kid in your house, I hope you guys can talk this series together about what you're learning, what they have already learned, see what they remember. But these stories, they can be in our lives from when we're very young. And we might have heard some of these stories. But as we grow, as we mature, new things happen in our lives. And we start to look at the concepts, not just of an amazing, like of a a scary plague or an amazing water parting of the Red Sea, but we look deeper into the lives of the people who were affected. We look at the way burdens and harm and oppression were placed upon people. And we can see that from different lenses now as we mature. And as we go through our own experiences, we might find a need to call out for a deliverer. So uh, we spent about a year journeying through the life of Jesus, and guess what? We're in another journey. Because the word exodus means the road out of. And so this is quite literally a journey God's people are going to be taking on a road, leaving a place to head to their own land. And so we journeyed with Jesus. Now we're going to journey back with his ancestors. And so we're going to see in this, we're going to take a couple of different parts of this trip together. And I want to lay on a map for those of us who like to see the big picture, okay? So first, we're going to begin with Exodus 1 through 12 leading up to the week of Easter. And this is a time when God's people aren't out yet. We're seeing the need. What is the need here? Why are the people being oppressed? What does that feel like? Who will be among them as a leader to help them get out? And get out is the key words that our staff has been leaning into for this first section of Exodus. Because if you know the movie reference, there is an impending dread of this situation is not safe. There is fear, and that is what God's people are feeling and they are ready to get out of Egypt. 
the second section after Easter, we are going to be journeying through the watery wonder of God's rescue. How does God people God get his people out? Um, so we're just going to call it we out. It's time. They're not going to stick around any longer. Shake the dust off of Egypt, off their feet, and head out. And we'll look through God's plan for them to help them, guide them to their own land, figure out how to establish themselves again as his people. He'll set up this plan for them and their relationship with Yahweh, the Lord God. So that's where we're headed. So today, oh, that's our big plan. But we're going to zoom in each week because I want us to note in every story we read, whether it's new to us or familiar, I want us to note two things. Number one, Yahweh reveals. We're going to talk a little bit more about that name in a couple of weeks. This is the name that God says to call him, the Lord God, Yahweh. He's going to reveal things about himself with every story we read. There's something that God is displaying to his people Israel and to us today. Number two, we're going to see how Jesus relates because we went through Jesus' life and Jesus lived on earth as Yahweh come to earth. And we're going to see how the same God spans the Old Testament, the New Testament, and lived out deliverance for us in the context that we have just spent going through Jesus' life and we're going to see how he connects and relates to the Exodus. Okay, I'm going to be reading from a variety of different people, quoting from some different scholars, and they're all going to have different titles. They all teach. They all tend to have written books and have studied God from different perspectives because I want us to see that a variety of people in the world find hope and strength in God through the Exodus. And sometimes they're going to differ in some theology than us, but what I'm going to quote from them will be the things that we share and have in common, and it'll be really interesting for us to see from their eyes. The Exodus matters to so many people. Esau Macaulay noted that the Exodus narrative is probably the most repeated portion of the Torah, those first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. But he says, the Exodus is the story we hear about the most. And God brings it up himself. Whenever the people of Israel, Esau said, whenever they got depressed about what was going on in their lives, or when God wanted to pull people's card and say, remember who I am, he would say, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. The Exodus narrative reveals God's character as the one who liberates. So through the pages of scripture, you can search that. You can go online, search it at BibleGateway.com is what I like to use. And you can search that out of Egypt and see people referencing Israel. And they are being, they're called the ones who came out of Egypt. And God speaks of himself as the one who brought them out of Egypt. It's this identity for a people and for the God who created them. So that is why this study matters and why it has reverberations in life today. So let's begin. Let's begin journeying with the Hebrew people and meet this deliverer. I'm going to begin by reading Exodus 1, verses 1 through 7. These are the names of the sons of Israel, 
who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers in all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. In just a few sentences, we have centuries being covered here. The end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus, you flip a page in your Bibles. However, that was like 400 years. And at the end of Genesis, we see God's people descended from Abraham, who you might have heard of before, and they start off as a family. But over time, they become a small nation, numbering hundreds of thousands. So that is what those opening verses are covering for us. So how did they get to Egypt in the first place? Well, let's look at the family tree. We have Abraham, who had Isaac, who had Jacob, one of Jacob's sons. We had, they had 12 sons, and we heard all their names read aloud. And one of them, Joseph, well, the other brothers, they kind of had issue with Joseph. I mean, he was, he was a very confident man. And so they decided to sell him into slavery. It's not a great brotherly prank, but that's what happened. And so Joseph is taken to Egypt. And through a series of adventures there, over the years, he comes up and, and is used by God to help the people of Egypt. And they are doing well in a time of famine when all the lands around them don't have food. Because of Joseph's leadership, Egypt has food. And so he's promoted. He's like second in command, a, a Hebrew man in charge of Egypt. And things were going well. And his family, all those brothers that sold him into slavery, uh, they realized they didn't have food in their land. And so they headed to Egypt, and then they hoped, hoped, hoped that Joseph would be kind of nice. Sorry we sold you. Can we have some food? And Joseph reassures them. He did the courageous thing, and he forgave them. Genesis 50, verse 20 says, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. So God blessed Egypt, and he used it as a refuge for this family to come to, for them to survive for Joseph to bring blessing upon this land, but it was just temporary. This really wasn't that promised land that we hear that God had created for his people, but Egypt was supposed to be a temporary refuge. Yet, they've been there for a while. Joseph lived to 110, and then they just kept living there, and now they have multiplied to become a nation. It says they have become numerous and filled the land. And so Egypt here in this segment of society, has lots of Israelite people. But they begin to be treated poorly, harshly, and God now has to deliver them out of Egypt. Let's keep reading. Verse 8 says, Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, come. We must deal shrewdly with them, 
or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar and all kinds of work in the fields. In all of their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. That phrase, did not know Joseph, that was like a euphemism for hatred. But they had forgotten this, that the people initially brought salvation to their land. Now they're just an, a nuisance. Actually, they begin to be feared. Because despite all the good Joseph had brought to Egypt, now the Israelites are seen as, well, maybe they're going to turn against us. Now they're a threat to our way of life. And if you're living in someone else's land, you never quite feel secure. And you can have a conversation with anyone who has immigrated into a different country, and they never quite feel comfortable. Like at any moment, their status could be seen poorly. So that lack of security, that lack of power, because they don't have anyone in charge in the leadership area anymore. Joseph has passed away. No other Israelite has ascended to his greatness in the government. And so now when Pharaoh, a new Pharaoh who didn't know Joseph or all those good things, now that he's in power, the Hebrew people don't have any power to fight against the ruthlessness being done to them. Making bricks is one of those three examples. They said the fields and the bricks and, and doing all these things, but that was hard work, and that's what we are focused in on, on what is going on with the Hebrew lives. It's this, this really harsh brick-making work. Let's consider the pyramids. One pyramid had been studied. Pharaoh Senusret III at Dashur. Someone tried to do an estimate. You see these beautiful pyramids, but how many bricks are involved? 24.5 million bricks is estimated in just that one, that one pyramid being observed. And they looked, and the bricks were of different sizes, and you can even see thumbprints in them, like handmade. Not, this is not some molded factory setting, right? These were handmade bricks. And a leather scroll found in the day of Pharaoh Ramses II noted that the quota for the slaves was to each make 2,000 bricks a day. And it said that they hardly ever lived up to that heavy quota. It gives us a different perspective when we see the beauty and the majesty, yet know how those were built. Nahum Sarna noted that there are different types of slavery in different cultures, and, and we know the slavery that's in our own country's history. Nahum says what's described here in Egypt is state slavery, the organized imposition of forced labor upon the male population for long, indefinite terms of service under degrading and brutal conditions. He notes that the women don't appear to have been enslaved. They're, they're mainly described males here. 
And the evidence shows that the men went home at night to their families and to their own homes. It wasn't a situation where they were being forced to live in Egyptian households. In fact, they might just be next-door neighbors. That's what's described in this history here. You're living next to neighbors, but you're different. And your neighbor could be the one pressing you down. It was, it was a very hard time for God's people. But as this scripture noted, the harsher Egypt was, the more God's people kept growing. Verse 15. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. Because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw it into the Nile, but let every girl live. Notice that we have, we're going to define a few terms here in this heavy story. Notice the word Israelites and Hebrews, they're describing the same people later. The word Jewish is used in different seasons of their existence. This nation, this group of people is called by different terms, same people. Next note, the word Pharaoh is like the title king, which we did see used, both terms used here too. And so it's a title, but we don't actually know this Pharaoh's name. It's kind of kind of telling. We don't know his name, but we know the name of two seemingly small in, stat in a small in society women who are the midwives. Shifra and Pua, we get to learn their names because they matter and they're used in this story to do something courageous. So one more note, the word, the, he describes a delivery stool. Uh, I found this carving that someone took that's in Egypt today. And it informs us that women, they didn't give birth laying down as we would practice today, but are sitting up on a stool. So that's the moment where he's like, okay, you know, the baby's born and you're not handing them to the mother. You're supposed to kill the boys. So that's what's being asked of them. Let's meet the midwives, Shifra and Pua. They're described as midwives to the Hebrews, which, I mean, it could be that they were Hebrews themselves or they were people assigned to care for the Hebrews, but people most likely assume because it says they fear God, that there are Hebrews. Either way, they do fear God, and that is their motivation for what they do. If the nation of Israelites had increased to such a large number, I can imagine that not just two midwives would be in work there. Perhaps these two women were in charge of the guild of midwives. Because if there's a lot of people living here, there's a lot more babies to be born probably than two women could handle. And let's, finally, we'll zoom in on that word, fear God. 
always nice to remember what this means in Scripture. Sometimes it's a, a reminder for us because we hear this phrase and we think, you know, fear is usually the bad thing. Let's see what it means here. Fear here is to have respect for God the Lord, a gratitude toward him being awe of his majesty and power and trust in that power is implied. It might be the same way I, I really like the ocean, but I kind of fear it too. Like it's beautiful and gorgeous, but it, can, it brings life. It can knock me over in a second. So I'm like, careful, makes me responsible how I handle being around the ocean. But that we are in a communion with a powerful God. And Shifra and Pua both served a God and also had awe and respect of him and his values that they went against Pharaoh's order. So when they did not live up to Pharaoh's commands, Pharaoh demanded that his own people become the murderers. We wonder and we don't know how long did this take? Like what was the time frame between Pharaoh giving the order and realizing, oh, the population's still growing? Was this a month? Was this a year? How did they keep track? Was there like a census going on, a running tally of how many Hebrews are being born per day? We don't know, but it's just interesting to wonder, how did Pharaoh notice that things weren't going according to his plans? Wilda Gaffney notes that when Shifra and Pua are called in to speak to the Pharaoh, they use his own cultural bias against him. That word that we see as vigorous. The Hebrew women are so vigorous, they just have the babies. Well, it's, the original word could also be this homophone for like wild animal. Like, like Pharaoh thinks so lowly of the Hebrew women that he's just like, oh yeah, they're kind of, they're just wild and they, they just have the babies. Okay. Like it, that excuse just kind of flows past him because he already sees them as less than, so they must be so different. But Wilda also summarized today's verses in this phrase that I love. She said, the liberation of Israelite people in Egypt begins with Shifra and Pua. They were the first deliverers in the book of deliverance. I like looking at that word in those two angles. Because God is beginning to deliver his people into a new life out of oppression just the way these women just were bending low and delivering new life into the world, one baby at a time. I noted each week that we would discuss how Yahweh is revealed and how Jesus relates. So let's look at those two things right now. In today's verses, I see God revealing himself as deliverer, just like we described the midwives caring for these children and protecting them. God is demonstrating a tenderness to his character that he will deliver. And he wants to deliver not only spiritually, but he cares about these Israelite bodies from birth, that he wants to protect them, that he wants to care for them and nurture them. And you see that God is moving through the hands of the midwives, bringing life protecting from harm in that most vulnerable time of our lives. And I see God as deliverer in a whole new way. Jesus, 
he relates to this story. Jesus' own body and spirit were protected in the refuge of Egypt because his life was threatened by a king worried for power. Steve mentioned for us last week in Matthew 2 that when the Magi had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Jesus would have been like two years old or younger. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. When Herod realized he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned about from the Magi. King Herod, in Jesus' day, was responding the same way this Pharaoh is responding. The fear is that power is being threatened, that the kingship, that the authority is somehow going to be thwarted by a small child, Jesus, or a population of people growing in your country, in Egypt. And the, the reaction is this, this horrible violence. And so just as God worked through Shifra and Pua to swoop up and rescue the babies, God is working through the hands of Joseph and Mary, picking up the child Jesus, carrying him off to Egypt. And just as God had created a way to provide for his people in a time of famine in Egypt, he's providing Jesus safety to, to be protected in Egypt. And so we see that Jesus' life is intertwined with this same Egypt that his ancient people had been in. God continues to use all kinds of experiences to bring deliverance. And it may be people we weren't expecting. As we talked about last week, what Egypt meant in the lives of Israel we think of them as the enemy, and we're going to keep reading, just as we read in this verse today, how ruthless and harsh, and yet God still decided to use those same people for Jesus to go find safety in. God continues to redeem stories, even from the people we don't expect. So what can we take away from Exodus chapter 1 for us, for in our lives today? Well, I want us to look at the actions of Pharaoh, Shifra, and Pua and see them as extreme responses to fear. We have the negative and the positive extreme. Pharaoh saw the outsiders increasing in number and he had fear for his own kingship, his own authority. He felt threatened and he turned into self-preservation mode and that can be something but it went way, way deeper. It went twisted and inward and violent. Walter Brueggemann said, fear makes us selfish. Fear turns neighbors into threats. Fear drives us into desperate self-sufficiency and a yearning for privatism. Fear drives us to greed and idolatry. Fear refuses the other. So Pharaoh chose taking the fear he had, turning it not only negatively, violently, harmfully against a generation of Hebrew people, 
He also pushed fear onto Shifra and Pua, threatening for them to do his dirty work. They faced imminent fear for their own lives. But how did they react? They had that same choice to turn inward for self-preservation, but they chose to be courageous. They faced fear with courage and they took a risk because they could see their people, their community, their family at stake. It's a hard choice. But now we can see on both ends that when fear comes, people can respond one way or another. And there's a whole gamut of options in the middle, right? These are extremes. But it's good to look at the extremes because we might think, well, sure, when I respond selfishly sometimes to fear, and that we all do. We all, you know, defense first, protect self. And we're like, that's not as bad as like genocide, obviously. However, it is good to note that there are paths and that when we take action, it affects other people. Even when we're protecting ourselves, we need to have an awareness that our actions have ripple effects and that something we choose for ourselves, if we're not fully aware, it can affect other people. Others notice, others are impacted in ways we don't know, and younger generations can be affected by adult decisions. You may be on the receiving end of that and understand. Just recognize that we all have the potential to do that to others. So I speak to myself too. Let's let that stop us in our tracks. That might feel harsh, but let's sit in that and just realize that what we do matters. And let's try to make those healthy responses to fear in order to be a blessing to others as well as to ourselves. Okay, so that was the negative extreme. On the other hand, we might look at Shifra and Pua and think, wow, they, they made an amazing choice in the face of fear. I probably will never be in a situation to save a generation of people by my actions. But on the same way, like, our actions have ripple effects. And you don't know the good that one choice has and how that can become exponentially used in God's hands to be a bigger blessing than you realize. That when you make courageous choices because you fear God, other people also notice. And they're inspired to make those choices for themselves. You don't know the difference you make. You don't know if your name will be remembered generations from now like Shifra and Pua. Do you think they thought anybody would remember their name? But we do. We speak them. And your name can be spoken by others as an example of living godly love, even in the face of fear. Making those choices for the community, sometimes they're like today. I wanted to see you guys in your faces, but we had to all make decisions to say, let's be safe, let's care for each other as a church, and let's hang out online. We did that through COVID. We figured this out. And those are hard choices, but you are making them to take care of each other. And I say thank you, because that affects all of us when we're all trying to take care of each other. And we can continue to live in that spirit, 
even in the face of fear, we, we can bravely choose a godly step forward. We're going to keep facing fear. And fear comes in a lot of forms. You can, we can fear losing the people we love. We can fear economic downturn. We can fear making the right decision. We can fear letting others down. We can fear letting others in. But each time, those heavy burdens have to be reckoned with because we do have to respond. And if we respond without thinking, that's when we can harm. So I just want us to, to look at the way we respond to fear this time, this week, this month, this year. Because we, we know what it feels like for someone else to respond in self-protection and it can, they can block us out. They can push us. They can harm us. They can cut us off. And we can say they're doing it, yes, out of fear, but it still hurts. So we want to recognize that we have the ability to bring darkness or light. We can bring a spirit of death into our relationships or a spirit of life into relationships. We can cause hurt or inspire hope. Those two paths, there's a lot of space along those, but we have the capacity to go either direction. And so I hope that we can keep pressing towards light and life and hope. How did Shifra and Pua do that? They feared God. And yes, I find it funny that they fought fear with fear and used a play on those words, but that's quite poetic. And that's our challenge too. That fearing God, connecting to an invisible power, trusting and submitting to that and, and not knowing where it might take us, that's vulnerable. That's a little, a little scary. And yet, we can emulate these deliverers and say yes to our deliverer, to call out to God as deliverer. And I believe that he will respond. I believe that Yahweh, the Lord God, will draw near to us and offer protection just as much as loving adults protect vulnerable children. God wants to deliver us from our fears and our pain and oppression if we call out to him. We saw Shifra and Pua do that. We know Jesus called out to the Father's power and protection when he was on earth. When fear strikes, let's cry out. We can push aside that, that temptation to focus on self and take a step, a courageous step toward life-giving, community-building, courageous choices. Let's pray together, would you? God, we thank you for knowing that we are humans who face fear. We thank you, Jesus, that you lived on earth and know what it's like to face fear of all kinds. Help us to emulate the courageous choices of leaning on you like Shifra and Pua to say yes to who you are even in the face of others around us. Lord, we ask for your strength 
We ask for your strength to keep living in your light and help us to leave a path for others to follow toward you, toward hope, toward light and life. Thank you for creating us, for knowing us, for delivering us. Amen. Thank you for the gift of your attention today. If you ever want to join Echo Church in person, we meet on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. You'll find us at 1301 East McMillan Street. That's in the Walnut Hills neighborhood of Cincinnati, Ohio, just up the street from our city's beautiful Eden Park. Find out more about us on our website, echochurch.org. Have a great week.